0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Jason Kelly.
2: And I'm Taylor Riggs. In for Carol Master. welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more.
1: This week, veggie burger wars. I love this story, Taylor. <laughs> it's such a fun read and very much in, as they say around this newsroom, in the zeitgeist. And retirees, apparently they're scared to spend.
2: Plus, the cover story, LaCroix, it was once the darling of sparkling waters. Today, it's struggling against a very crowded market. It is this week's cover story. First up, though, Jason, protests that began in Hong Kong in June over a bill that would allow extraditions to China have spawned a near-daily event that have now focused global attention on the city and its relationship with Beijing. On Wednesday, President Trump says he's watching the area closely.
0: I hope Hong Kong works out in a very humane way. I don't view it as leverage or non-leverage. I hope it works out in a humane way. And I think that President Xi has the ability to make sure that happens.
1: So Taylor, all eyes continue to be on Hong Kong. And ultimately, this is at least partially an economic story.
2: I totally agree. I mean, I think what started out as a small protest over an extradition bill has arguably turned into a much more of an economic story, and you're really starting to see the protesters come out for a whole bunch of other issues as well.
1: All right, so let's take this in two ways. Christina Lindblad here with us in New York City. Help us understand this from the youth perspective, because you use the word rage in this story, and that feels very appropriate.
3: Yeah, I think that... You know, so far the protesters have limited, like, their specific demands to political goals, like universal suffrage. But feeding into this anger, this unrest, is growing inequality on Hong Kong, and also the sense that, you know, um, you you don't have equal opportunity. This was a place where people, you know, has always had huge uh, divisions between the haves and have-nots, but there was always the possibility I could be one of those people who strikes it rich. And I think a lot of people don't feel that anymore.
2: One of the key statistics that really stuck out to me is always with Hong Kong, we know comes back to the property market. And median property prices have climbed almost 21 times median household income. So people now can barely even afford their homes it sounds like. I think people don't really understand what that means I mean we have
3: this great graphic that we did for the magazine you know if you London and San Francisco are under 10 those ratios and those are cities we are already used to thinking as you know kind of very pricey so people live in these you know gerrymandered subdivided apartments uh, we interviewed some of them and you know so there's been a lot of you know we talked to some young people who are thinking about who have good jobs so unemployment is not youth unemployment is not an issue right. like it is in Europe and other places it's slightly lower than on the mainland but people are thinking about moving to Taiwan moving away to other places where they feel like they have more opportunity
1: so what happens next I mean protests aside what are the economic elements that could change and what may not change uh, as we go forward in the near term.
3: Well, Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, has to start thinking about, I'm sure she has been thinking about, what can she do to appease these movements, right? So I think that potentially is a problem for the people in Hong Kong who became rich from property, and and that's almost every important billionaire uh, in the territory. Because the island has this system that it inherited from British colonial rule, where land is leased for very long, long periods of time from the government, it has constrained the supply and driven up prices. So they have, I don't think that we're going to see a wholesale dismantling of that system. But the government has been toying with the idea of taking back some of the land that it's given to property developers who have not developed it there is for example one company that is sitting on something on an area that's bigger than Central Park it's agricultural land it has to be rezoned to be residential but that could be done and so the government could move to start you know uh, expropriating with compensation that land to make it into public housing.
2: And as you mentioned, Carrie Lam arguably is it beneficial for her to move the conversation from the extradition bill over to some of the economic policies?
3: Absolutely, it has also the added benefits of these being policies that might get support from Beijing. Right. Uh, China has been very concerned about rising property prices fueling, uh, you know, income inequality and potentially being destabilizing. You know, President Xi says houses are for living in they're not for speculating right Um, but the big if though is until now property developers have become a very important constituency for lamb they have you know backed her um, and you know not every every move that she's made because they're also negotiating you know this this difficult you know dance but they have been behind her so if she takes direct aim at them She's losing, uh, uh, you know, an important constituency.
1: Well, and through both of these stories and through this whole section, Christina, you really remind us of the economic might and the economic importance of Hong Kong in the broader world. You know, elsewhere in the magazine, we hear about Cathay Pacific, and you know, that's a connection to New York and London and San Francisco and all these other places. It's easy to forget maybe with all the images of the protesters how important this is to the broader world this is not an isolated story with no implication
3: no I mean Lee Cushing the you know who was the founder of the biggest conglomerate in Hong Kong I mean half almost half of that company's revenues now come from Europe and this week alone they bought a rest like a restaurant and pub chain in the UK so they're increasingly I mean that is one thing that that you know it will hurt less If the government moves against the conglomerates now, that it would have been 20 years ago because they have become so diversified.
1: That's Christina Lindblad joining us in New York. And Taylor, what I loved about this was we really widened the aperture in a way. This is not just a political story. It's an economic one as well.
2: Well, and we are hearing from both businesses and billionaires there on the ground, tiptoeing that line to balance out that relationship between Hong Kong and Beijing. And coming up, we'll stay in Asia and continue this story, this time looking at the saga of Cathay Pacific.
1: So certainly one of the most compelling business stories, given everything that's happening in China right now, is the saga of Cathay Pacific very much caught in the crosshairs in a lot of ways. Jim Ellis is here with us. He edited the story that
0: takes us inside that company's turmoil of sorts, Jim. Yeah, they're sort of caught in the middle on this, and it's sort of a good, sort of an object lesson for other companies that do business in China um, about you know sort of the, the the dangers of being caught in this big political tussle right now. Swire is the company that um, has a big stake in Cathay Pacific. It's an old British trading house that had been in China since the 1800s, and so it knew its way around. But uh, it, it also has a lot of different businesses. It's done you know sort of river travel up and down. It's done shipping. It's done whatever. Its big business now is it also owns uh, the Coca-Cola franchises in eleven provinces and the city of Shanghai. That's a big, big deal. But they also own 45% of Cathay. And so this company was really good at knowing how to play the the game in China. When the handover came in the 90s, they decided, huh, the way to stick around was to sell a piece of the company to China so they'd stay in Beijing's good graces. And if anybody gets pushed out, usually the connected companies don't. So they did that, and and even today, um, Swire owns 45% of Cathay Pacific and, uh, Air China, which is state owned, owns 30%. And so that supposedly will keep you safe. The issue, however, when the protests came up was that a lot of Cathay employees participated right. in the car were sympathetic. And that has sent, um, you know, sort of the government off the rails. And they have used all the pressure that you can do when you're a government to sort of make sure that the company sort of behaves. What they've done is they came in and they said, Okay, um, you know, all the um, uh, employees who participated should be banned from working in China. All of your employees who go into our airspace, which is a huge number, of, yeah. you, know, you have to provide all their names. You also are going to have a, suddenly a safety inspection for the whole carrier and um right down to people's cell phones right correct i mean so the thing is that you know they know how to um basically make it very difficult for you to do business if you don't do business the right way it's also a sign that china says you know you can play in our markets but you have to play by our rules and we set them
2: well, enforcing the resignation, so to speak, of the Cathay Pacific chairman is one sign that they sent of you have to play by. It's our a goals.
0: very strong sign, but it, the, the, one of the questions that remains now is: Is it enough? Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of. The, one of the Communist Party papers is saying that that's probably not enough. They probably should do more because they've got renegade employees. And so what this is, um, you know, sort of showing other companies that do business in Hong Kong is that you know Hong Kong is part of China, and don't forget that. We've already seen. Um, a number of co- other companies pulled into this. Um, you know, a bunch of luxury brands that had t-shirts that, uh, and apparel that sort of suggested that Hong Kong was its own country. It's right. Versace, Givenchy. Um, they've been forced to apologize for that. Um, there's a lot of back and forth. And then on the opposite side of that, companies that have gone out of their way to say, yeah, we think the government is great, um, like HSBC, you know, then the protesters have been saying HSBC has gone too far and is basically defending the government against the demonstrators. And that's gotten them into trouble in the local market, which puts you in this weird position if you're a company, whether you're, you know, all behind Beijing, but you do business in Hong Kong. And so then the locals are angry at you.
1: I don't know how to pivot hard to the next (laughs) (laughs) story that you have in the section, because it's an interesting one. Much back, uh, much closer to home here. uh, I have to confess My brother is a big live PD fan. Uh, (laughs) As many others are. As many others are. A&E, it has given an amazing amount of life to a tough corner of the cable world. Tell us about what's going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting so much about that is that you know, cable is in a tough situation right now, especially with so much growth in streaming. People love to be able to sort of do what they want to, see what they want to see when they want to see it, and um, binge watch, do whatever, and so Cable has been uh, sort of under assault. What A and E has done is figured out that they have this program, which is called Live PD, which basically takes feeds from eight different police departments around the country, and then they sort of string pieces of it together. It's live, and they go back and forth to what's going on right now and what's hottest, and they sort of concentrate on that. It has, you know, it takes the popular genre you know tv you know uh, police drama yeah and then they put up make it sort of unpredictable that's the live aspect and so that has been like catnip for a lot of tv viewers and a lot of days um on the weekends it's the most popular t- program on cable
2: what do the police forces say because police forces have been sort of in the crosshairs recently with uh, perhaps comments that they're using excess force right. when it shouldn't be and now you're sort of broadcasting it live on air which could put them in a tough situation or I guess give them an opportunity to sort of talk about their real jobs and sort of what it's like on the ground what is the police well well,
0: that was one of the reasons that uh, some of these police departments have signed up what Mm -hmm. they say is that you know it's an opportunity for them to get more of their story out there you see more of what actual policing is and you just don't see uh, you know a sort of 22nd clip that came on the evening news of some sort of crime parent or whatever it shows the more of the incidents that happen, and that is how they got you know, people to sign up. However, a lot of what makes good television and policing is bad behavior right. you know so sort of drug use shootings whatever and so that's upset some people like in spokane there was a lot of um kept washington there was a lot of pushback that it was making the city look bad to continually have the policemen running after drug dealers to do whatever and so um the city council changed the rules there and it's made it much more difficult to um uh you know sort of have police shows because they don't want their reputation to be sullied that way. And how much has this helped A&E
1: at this point? Mm -hmm. Because as we've talked about, a lot of people going to to streaming, does A&E and its brethren, do they double down on this type of content at this point? Well,
0: A&E, this has been really good for them. I mean, they had toyed around with, uh, even gone back to scripted dramas, you know, which is something that HBO and bigger. Right. Sort of it's know, really do, do, expensive. Yeah, it's very expensive, and a lot of people do this very well. And after Live PD, basically the year after Live PD came on, they decided forget the whole thing. They canceled all their scripted dramas and they've gone completely in re- into reality. And now there are seven spin-offs from Live PD, <laughs> including That's one really about insane. police women and an upcoming one uh, where police dogs compete against each other.
2: That's Jim Ellis. And Jason, this Cathay Pacific story is so fascinating to me. When the chairman resigned, not only is this a share price story of Cathay Pacific, but really highlights how Beijing is starting to influence companies. Is on the ground
1: well and there's a tie back to sort of the British Empire days wrapped up in this as well and a lot more at stake for the owner of Cathay Pacific and a lot more at stake for one of the owners of Cathay Pacific than just the airline trade.
2: Jason, of course, you and I have talked so much about the big economic recovery that's underway. And typically, given confidence in the economy, the rise of the stock market, we'd expect people to be spending. Uh, But we have a story on Bloomberg Business Week this week that means maybe people are a little bit hesitant about spending.
1: Well, especially older people, apparently, who have a lot of money to spend. Ben Steverman is with us, and he had the story which is full of surprises. Ben, what made you look at this in the first place? What tipped you off?
4: So I talk to financial advisors all the time. They work with wealth, wealthy people. And... I keep hearing that a lot of them actually have to encourage their clients to spend. These are people who've been working their whole lives, working at demanding jobs, they retire with millions and millions of dollars, and they aren't enjoying it. They're just, they're very hesitant to to, to spend much money, and so they're living on these little tiny dividend checks or um, tiny interest rates on their bonds. They don't want to touch principal. And so I decided to kind of look at that and think about the broader economic effects that's having. So now that we we really have created a lot of wealth over the last 10 years, the question is, Where is that wealth going and is anybody actually enjoying the fact that we've made all this money?
2: Well, and I wonder why aren't we spending? Are we still so scarred from 2008 that we're too afraid to even see any of our savings sort of dip a little bit? I
4: think that's a good part of it. There's there's a rational fear and an irrational fear here. There's the rational fear that we don't know what investment returns are going to look like and in fact they might be pretty disappointing. Um, you also, as an individual retiree, as a wealthy person, uh, somebody who has a substantial nest egg, you really don't know how long you're gonna need that to last. And people are living now into their 90s. Some are hitting 100. Medical costs at the end of life are really extreme. Now, you also have people who, even after all that, have a lot of money. And, and you know the fruits of this recovery have really gone to that top 1%, top .1%. And these are people who are already Pretty old too, uh, you know. F- households over 75, the typical household over 75, is really the only group that's really back to their pre-2008 levels. So those folks are feeling pretty good in the sense that they should be feeling good, in the sense that they have a lot of money in their bank. But there's still this sort of irrational fear that I don't want to touch principal. I'm scared of what's what the future holds. And I think that's partly just the fact that that's part of aging. as you mm-hmm. get you're less willing to take risks.
1: So Ben, talk to us about the source of this money, because it feels like that has something to do with it. You know, we've moved from an age of the pension where people felt like they had this nice little nest egg that they had accrued over time with the help of their company to defined contribution. And that feels maybe to people a little less certain. What's at play there? so you know if you think about um a lot of the retirees today
4: still have a little bit of pension income or they have an annuity or something like that but uh, but they don't have that like um, you know increasingly we don't have somebody backing us up some safety net and a lot of us are just going to be retiring with this giant pool of money and we're like what are we going to do with this how do we make this last and you know there's something called the four percent rule which is oh people quibble about it but it's just an idea that you can pretty much safely take four percent out every year from a nest egg and it's going to continue to rise and you're not going to lose money or lose principal. 4% of a million dollars is $40,000. So you potentially could have a millionaire living on a $40,000 income, and it's just not enough. So we have to come up, really, in big conversation in retirement circles, we have to come up with ways of insuring people so that, um, or, or, you know, pooling our risks in terms of longevity or medical care so that we can tap a little bit more money and really like live off the money that we've saved rather than just living off these tiny interest rates.
2: You dig into the numbers here and you have a great chart showing families above 75 have actually seen their wealth increase by about 44% since 07. But then it's the younger generation below 35 years of age that have seen their wealth decline by about 38%. Now I'm confused because I thought the same Savers were being punished with low record, low interest rates. And younger people investing in the stock market, which is, let's say, doubled since the bottoming out of the financial crisis, were really supposed to be benefiting from that. What went wrong?
4: I think what's happened is that young people aren't invested in the stock market. And their real their real investment is their jobs, their incomes, and incomes have not increased, uh, you know at a substantial rate in this. Wages haven't increased in in this recession. So you have these capital markets that have just boomed. Stock markets have just tripled and and, and keep going up um, until recently. And then you have older folks who actually haven't taken that much risk off the table. They're still in those dividend producing stocks and they've still
1: gotten a big share of that recovery uh, in in the equity markets. And that's Ben Steverman joining us in New York. And Taylor, I'll confess, this story surprised me.
2: What is scary is you had retirees above 75 not really spending, and that means that they could pass on that money to younger generations. But we're going to have to wait a lot longer to get that money because life expectancy is growing so fast. And what does that mean for the economy if the consumer and spending really is the only thing keeping us growing?
1: Well, that's exactly right. I feel like there's a thread developing through this show of unintended consequences when people aren't spending money. That that has a real ripple effect. So Taylor, I know it's very important for you to stay (laughs) hydrated, which leads to the key question, sparkling or still, ma'am?
2: You know, we have to go sparkling, but the big problem is, which sparkling water?
1: Well, it's becoming more and more complicated. It's the subject of a huge story in Business Week this week. It's all about LaCroix and the battle of the bubbles. Lauren Etter joins us from Los Angeles. She helmed this story. It's a complicated one, especially because We're just talking about sparkling water, but so much more. Lauren, give us the scoop
5: hi thanks so much so essentially LaCroix is the brand of sparkling water that most people have known and loved for many many years Uh, for the past three years the brand has essentially had a had a lock on the market for sparkling water as a major brand Um, in recent years in the past pretty much the past year and a half there have been a number of competitors uh, from the biggest uh, soft drink companies in the world like coke and Pepsi they've introduced their own sparkling waters to compete with LaCroix, and as a result, LaCroix is now under tremendous pressure to retain its status as the leader in the sparkling water market, and um, they've had a little bit of trouble doing that. Um, so that's, that's essentially where we are now.
2: And before we talk about some of the competition, which I know we want to get to, take me behind the company that is LaCroix, and most uh, poignantly, arguably, would be the founder behind that and the CEO. Who is he? What is he like?
5: Yeah, so the the CEO and founder of LaCroix is actually a man named Nick Caparella. And he is the CEO of the company, which holds many beverages. It's called National Beverage Corporation, National Beverage Corp. And they're actually, they started off as a soda company. And over the years, they acquired multiple brands. And they finally acquired LaCroix in the 1990s. And it was kind of like a sleeper for a long time. They didn't really do much with the brand. Nobody really drank that much sparkling water. And starting around 2000 and 2010, 2011, at a time when Americans stopped drinking as much soda, uh, they started turning to alternatives like sparkling water. So Nick Caparella, who is 83 years old um, and has who started this company in 1985, he suddenly found himself the steward of what became the... An amazing brand, LaCroix, and became really the leader of the sparkling water market and transformed this entire category.
1: Well, and to his credit, he really saw something, Lauren. It mm-hmm. feels like he leaned heavily into this. He took a personal interest to the point where he really considers this his baby, in the words of some of the folks that you interviewed. What did he see? What did he do that was different from other people?
5: well I think early on he recognized that the brand had potential because of its healthfulness it didn't have any sugar it had no um, it had no additives really so when when soda consumption started falling and Americans started drinking less because of the concern over obesity and type 2 diabetes um, he really was one of the first brands to start transitioning in the market and he saw LaCroix as an alternative so as early as 2006 he partnered with um, the the breast cancer foundation to sponsor these walks and it became sort of an early they, they claimed an early spot in the health health market the natural market as an alternative to soda so he did early on see the potential of the brand
2: So what happened since then? Because if you're a big leader early on, you have to constantly work to maintain that lead. Of course, as some other competitors came in, when did they peak and what happened to help start to contribute to a little bit of the decline that we've been seeing?
5: Yeah. So it's a, it's a really interesting business story. I mean, the brand really started growing. It started pretty gradually, actually, when you, when you look at the company and the transition up but to 2011, 2012, the stock increased a little bit. It had really been stagnant for a very long time. 2014, 2015, it started gaining momentum. There was a critical um, team inside LaCroix working with Nick Caparella that really shaped the, uh, the position of the brand in the market they decided to go after diet soda they decided to uh, really use social media at a time when that wasn't as prominent so they started trending on Instagram and Twitter and showing up in all kinds of photos and that type of thing. And it really just gained steam. So as it gained steam around 2015, 2016, um, internally, there was already starting to be some friction. There was some friction between the founder of the company, Mr. Caparella, and some of the internal employees and executives that were shepherding the brand. And that was partly just a disagreement over the future and over, um, over some of the strategy that the company was pursuing and as the brand became more and more popular mr Caparella became more and more involved in the brand he became hands-on even more hands-on with with the marketing with uh, designing the shape of the can introducing the newer slimmer can called curate and really advancing some of the flavors they that's around 2016 you really start to see lots of new flavors entering the market and that was sort of the that was the one thing that mr caparella really had uh, an interest in right. developing so you started seeing cola and key lime and the latest hibiscus um, so his his dominating presence in the company he's after all the owner he owns 74% of the stock so he really he really does drive the company and he's really the one with the with the, the most power there but it started rubbing some people the wrong way they felt like he wasn't listening to their input, and that he wasn't taking their advice. And it did lead, It did result in around 2016, 2017, a number of high-profile executives that had worked on the brand for years leaving the company. And that left a little bit of a power vacuum and a knowledge vacuum, too.
1: Right. And that's happening, and maybe not coincidentally, at a time when, as Taylor referenced earlier, you've got pepsi coming into this market you've got coca-cola coming in so you've got the top end these massive beverage companies with huge distribution networks they're coming in and then you also have some venture capital and private equity backed startups coming in from the lower end and as you've alluded to a classic case of a market dominating company getting squeezed from both sides so where are we now
5: So right now they're essentially defending their place in the market. They are they are entirely under siege from so many different places. And I think it's caught them a little bit off guard. They took a very long time to realize internally just how much the competition was going to affect them. And right now, they're really in battle mode. They're trying to defend their place in the market, but they haven't always taken the right steps. Um, I, it's debatable whether they're the right steps, but their stock is way down. The company is losing market share on the shelves. The company's, um, their their share of the sparkling water market even though is very large still it's declining when their competitors are seeing their share grow so they're really trying to figure out how to proceed how to maintain their leadership status and I think it's a question of whether or not they will be able to maintain their leadership status
2: well I like that you talked about sort of defending their position and what you do with that leadership status because you have a great quote in your story from a former employee that says sort of the ego had reached a knowledge Time high they said we're LaCroix they need us more than we need them and basically then you had a Whole Foods sort of coming out and calling their bluff and saying you need to lower your prices offer more discounting and promotions and LaCroix said no we don't want to put our margins at risk and then what happened
5: Well, they ended up losing prominent display space in their most important retailer, Whole Foods, and other retailers as well. They were not willing to budge on price. Instead of lowering the price, they increased the price. They reduced in-store promotional spending at a time when the competition was descending on them. And they really, that was also a cause of friction internally where executives were like, look, we need to maintain our status, our leadership status. And in order to do that, we need to double down on our spending and our promotional spending and Nick Caporella I talked to some of his closest executives and advisors and they said look Nick has always maintained that he does not want to take a hit on the margins and that he's not willing to do sweetheart deal for any of his major customers any of his retailers and that included Whole Foods so it's a business philosophy he maintained uh, he he maintained his position on that he didn't want to budge and over the years I think there was a little bit of hubris. He really did think that LaCroix was so special, so special in fact, that he called it the Tiffany of sparkling water as in the Tiffany diamond. So he really believed that the the brand had so much cachet in the market that he didn't need to stoop to the level of the other brands that were discounting aggressively and doing all these other things. So I think that that actually did hurt him. And I think that they're now uh, now trying to recover from that.
2: That's Lauren Eder. So Jason, I think the first thing we need to get straight is we learn the pronunciation. It is 100% confirmed LaCroix, not LaCroix.
1: LaCroix rhymes with joy. I'll never forget that. A uh, good tip from Lauren Etter. What a smart and such a typical, in some ways, classic Bloomberg Business Week story. A case study on the one hand, but also a strong dose of C-suite drama.
2: Well, and there is a great quote in there as well from the CEO and the company about some pressure that they got from Whole Foods to lower their promotions. And they say, no way, they need us more than we need them.
1: Well, we'll see if that turns out to be true.
2: Health care, of course, is a hot-button topic, especially as the 2020 presidential campaigns heat up. Here are Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders from the last Democratic debate.
6: I have the only plan that limits the ability of insurance companies to charge unreasonable prices, flat out.
5: We are not about trying to take away health care from anyone. That's what the Republicans are trying to do. And we should stop using Republican talking points.
7: Right now... We have a dysfunctional health care system, 87 million uninsured or underinsured.
1: So Taylor, amid all of the political back and forth, the Sturman Drang, the 2020 previews, Healthcare yep. always rises to the top as one of the big issues.
2: Well, and the Democrats, as they sort of figure out what they want their message to be, even within health care, there are so many differing opinions. They need to get a message to sort of come together and to fight the Republican.
1: Sahil Kapoor, our go-to guy in Washington, he's breaking it down for us in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. So as the Democrats coalesce, I guess in a way, Sahil, what are you seeing?
8: Well, they're coalesced around the basic principle that they want to get to universal health care coverage. The United States is not there yet. But in terms of how to get there, there, there are seriously differing opinions. There are deep divisions ranging all the way from uh, the idea of single payer health care, like Australia and Canada, where the government is the only insurance company, that proposal is supported by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And then you have the more moderate Democratic candidates who still want to make substantial changes. Joe Biden, for instance, the front runner, supports. Uh, adding to Obamacare, also known as the Affordable Care Act, a government-run insurance option that people can look at you know, the menu of private plans and decide, do I want one of those or do I want a public option? So that's the debate we're seeing right now. And it has sparked some very intense rivalries and some serious uh, battling between the candidates as they try to convince voters that they have their finger on the pulse of what to do with the healthcare system.
2: And from your conversations with candidates and from your reporting on the ground, what plan feels most likely, most reasonable, most affordable, most likely really to go forward within the Democratic Party?
8: Well, those are a lot, a lot of different questions here, and there are different answers to them. Um, the, the 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 splashiest plan, I would say, the splashiest one is Medicare for All. You probably heard that phrase a lot. I think everyone has at this point, and that's the Bernie Sanders single payer plan. Now that's that faces daunting obstacles in Congress, even if Democrats win a wave election. They have the Senate assume, uh, they have the House assume, and they have the White House uh, with, with someone like Bernie Sanders as president. It's highly unlikely to get through because a lot of Democrats oppose that as well. Then on the Joe Biden side, you have the, the public option, which uh, President Obama tried to get and failed to get in 2009 and 2010. And this also is going to be very difficult because it faces a likely 60 vote threshold in the Senate where Republicans would have the ability to block it. And so far, based on my reporting, they have no intention of going along with that. Mm. So even the most modest Democratic proposals to change the healthcare system face very difficult obstacles in Congress, and not to mention a healthcare industry that is determined to kill them. They don't want a, pop- a government run option competing with private insurers, because that would mean they have to lower their costs, they would have to lower uh, reimbursement rates to providers in order to compete, and they don't want to do that. So they're working to kill this thing in its cradle.
1: How much pressure is coming from the corporate side of this equation? Because we all know the lobbying power of all constituencies around healthcare is incredibly massive. Absolutely. The pressure is going to be enormous and it's already
8: cranking up. Now, over the last century or so, the history of Attempts at reforming the healthcare system is littered with legislation that died at the hands of industry groups like insurance companies, uh, pharmaceutical companies, and hospitals that didn't like major reforms. Uh, this goes all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt. Bill Clinton attempted to, to do universal health care, uh, but the industry groups didn't like it, and they successfully killed it with a multimillion-dollar ad campaign. Uh, that convince voters and lawmakers that it was a bad idea. So this is probably the single biggest obstacle Democrats face, because even if, they, even if they win full control of government, they're going to have to convince some of their own skittish members, their own recalcitrant members, that it's worth taking on the industry, that they're not going to face uh, you know, blowback at home for doing so. So keep an eye on this. This could determine whether or not Democrats really get anything done, uh, assuming they do win the presidency.
2: Well, not only have you been had blowbacks in some of the dismantling of ACA or Obamacare since Trump came into office, but Trump and the Trump administration has also been sort of attacking all of these plans and ideas. How much pressure has that put on them as well and made the Democrats perhaps a little bit more of a defensive side here?
8: It's fascinating because the healthcare industry is in many ways united behind the basic architecture of the Affordable Care Act. They like these insurance exchanges. They like the subsidies that you know give people uh, money to, to help afford coverage. But they don't like the idea of changing that in a way that expands the government's role in uh, health insurance. That's the single biggest battle they have now. And when I spoke to uh, representatives of these uh, health industry groups, they want to preserve the ACA and they want to build on it in ways such as expanding uh, Medicaid in states
1: that haven't expanded it. That's a big issue for hospitals especially. And that's Sahil Kapoor joining us from Washington and a really good reminder that healthcare, amid every. Everything else, Taylor, it's the number one issue.
2: And it is not only an issue between the Republicans and the Democrats, but there are massively diverse opinions within the Democratic Party themselves. They have to sort that out.
1: So, Taylor, I feel like we may be seeing the beginning of the next great corporate rivalry, Coke versus Pepsi, Apple versus Microsoft. Is it going to be Beyond Meat versus Impossible? I think so. All right. Dina Shanker is here. Great story in the magazine this week, taking us inside the fake burger complex what's happening this has been a phenomenon
9: it has been it seems to have come out of nowhere and even the people inside the industry will talk about it that way Uh, beyond me and impossible foods are two growing new companies that are making burgers out of plants and they are trying to get their products into as many locations as possible beyond me is in lots of supermarkets and restaurants Uh, impossible foods is in nearly 15,000 restaurants and food service locations, and should be in supermarkets very soon.
2: Now, we were talking about the cover story of this week's issue, which is about LaCroix, who was a sparkling water, who came out very dominant, but then as every other competitor has descended upon them, they're having to now defend their position. I know it's early days, but what would you see as a Beyond Meat and an Impossible Foods expanding or having to defend their position is perhaps a lot more competitors come in because let's be frank, this has just become such an attractive environment.
9: Yeah, there's already a bunch of competitors getting into the space. You have the big companies like ConAgra. They have a Garden brand, which uh, vegans and vegetarians have liked for a really long time, but now they're talking about stepping it up to try to match the uh, Beyond and Impossible offerings. Smithfield Foods, which is the world's biggest pork producer, is now making their own line of plant-based meat, which is really wild, I think five years ago, you would have been laughed at if you predicted yeah. such a thing. Nestle has one coming. And then there's a whole bunch of smaller companies that are also coming up uh, that if you went into Whole Foods, you might find something called No Evil Foods, which makes a lot of different kinds of plant-based meats. And uh, mica Foods is another one. There's so many. So there's gonna be a lot of defense being played by these big companies.
1: How did we get here? Because this it, this was a slow, slow burn, it feels like for a long time. You know, you would go to a restaurant maybe they had a, v- a veggie burger you would have like the sort of frozen bricks at your grocery store uh, you know the sort of garden burger or w- whatever it was and all of a sudden they figured something out. Was this science? Was it marketing? Was it a combination? What happened?
9: It was a combination of a few different factors. The first is that people have started to really care about their health and they see anything with the word plant as being necessarily healthier. It's not necessarily healthier, but people think it is so they buy it for that reason. There's also a lot of uh, drive coming from young people who want to do better by the environment. And uh, beef production is a major source of man-made Emissions. Uh, and so replacing beef is a popular way to reduce your emissions. It's a lot easier to get an impossible burger than it is to buy a Prius. So you see a lot of that happening as well. Um, and then there's also just the technology has gotten so much better. You know, uh, Bill Gates was one of the early investors. He invested in both of these companies. And he made it so that uh, this became an area that wasn't just for vegans and it wasn't just for um, some people trying something new out. It became an actual place to put money and in to yeah. invest. And so companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat were able to really ramp up what they were doing because they were getting this kind of investment. Well,
1: I feel like almost every day on our daily show, we're talking about yep. Beyond Meat's stock price. It's incredible.
9: Well, incredible.
2: But I, I want you to square with me something that I've been trying to understand. If I go to White Castle, I'm going for a horrible, not healthy, not nutritious. I'm going frankly because I want a bad burger, right? <laughs> right. Why would I go to White
9: Castle to get a fake meat burger? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think that the, I think what the company would tell you is that you'd go to White Castle and you'd say, oh, I feel like doing something a little better for the environment, so I'm gonna go with the slider and it's gonna taste exactly the same. Right. Does it taste exactly the same? I think most people would say no, but it tastes close enough. And what White Castle is saying is that people are coming in and they're getting meat sliders with their plant sliders. So they're mixing it up and they're trying okay. something new
1: all right so it feels like one of the next big moves here is beyond the burger sausage has been talked about as the real sort of gateway into the the broader market here when and why
9: so the sausages are relatively new to the beyond meat line and i can say i think they're so much better than the burgers they're really they're really good uh Meat eaters say that they are better, uh, they're closer to, to meat than the burgers are. And I think there's just a lot of excitement about the idea of going beyond uh, beyond a burger oh, yeah. and, and really coming out with something new. I think they grill really well, um, and they just, sausage in general I think has always been more amenable to the plant-based space because it gets a lot more spices and um, when you eat a regular sausage, what you're tasting normally is the the salt and the sage and so whatever else.
2: Jason Nicely is trying to get me to talk about the stock price and I, I just I figured wanted, you would bite on I that, that immediately, and I wanted to go and ask the White Castle question because that's been on my mind for six months. So let me come back. To that. The stock price has been phenomenal. Do they say that there is more room to run? How do the stock prices compare between Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, and then frankly, all the new competitors that are coming in?
9: So Beyond Meat, Ethan Brown uh, did not want to talk about mm. the about the stock price, and I don't blame him. I, I wouldn't want to talk about it either. When it's doing so well, you might jinx yourself. Best
1: performing IPO, major IPO of the year.
9: Yeah, I mean, best performing IPO since the recession. It's been incredible to watch. And again, something that I don't think anybody was expecting to happen. Um, But... There's, it's gone gone all the way up to more than $230, and now it's back down a little bit, and um, there's- This is
1: an $8 billion market cap company, right? Give or take.
9: Give or take, yeah, that's right. I mean, it peaked at over 14 billion, Um, and there's some questions about whether or not uh, they really have uh, the revenue to justify that kind of market cap, but um, I think it's, the bet is on the potential more than the bet is on what they're doing today or tomorrow. Um, and Impossible is uh, still in a uh, startup phase, so they're not public, and a, question, a lot of questions swirling around whether they'll go public, and right now they're saying not right now. Yeah. Um, but they're not, they're not foreclosing it for the future.
2: That's Dina Shanker. All right, Jason, I have yet to try a plant-based veggie burger, but apparently they're all the rage, so is the stock price.
1: It absolutely is when it comes to Beyond Meat. Impossible Foods Beyond Meat, one of the great rivalries that's certainly heating up. I have to say, I've tried a bunch of them. You got to go out and do it. But here's the warning that we heard from Dina. It's not like they're super healthy.
2: And you have sort of likened this to a Pepsi Coca Cola rivalry that's starting to brew.
1: I love it. I'm talking about
0: America, sweet America.
1: So, Jason Kelly here with you, my very special guest host, David Rubenson. He's got a book coming out in late October. It's called The American Story Conversations with Master Historians and of the folks he lined up to uh, give it some praise, to blurb it, as they say, in the business is Michael Beschloss, author, historian, author himself of nine books on presidential history, including most recently, Presidential Courage and The Conquerors. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Michael, thank you so much for joining
6: us. Thanks a lot. My pleasure.
1: All right. So I'll ask the question so he doesn't have to. uh,
6: What'd you make of this book? (laughs) Uh, I thought the book was spectacular, The American Story. And, you know, we historians think of David Rubenstein as someone who was a a born historian. He was sort of sidetracked to the law and venture capital for a few decades. And now we've got him back, and this book really shows it.
10: Well, actually, Michael himself was sidetracked for a while. He went to Harvard Business School. How many (laughs) historians do you know went to Harvard Business School? I think that was to please his family, but his real love was history as well.
6: Well, I think that's right. So uh, we overlap a little bit, and uh, in and packaging, David and I have been great friends for 30 years.
10: So, Michael, um, I appreciate your kind words about the book, and I have interviewed Michael well, as, many as times.
6: Sam, and Sam Rayburn would say that kind words have the added advantage of being true.
10: <laughs> but, uh, Michael has a new book himself, uh, which I've interviewed uh, him on, The Presence of War, and you might describe, Michael, what that book is about.
6: Uh, That book is about uh, presidents who have fought major wars from James Madison all the way through Richard Nixon, and the fact that as time went on, presidents got more and more power to wage wars almost single-handedly, and so the result is that presidents nowadays are a lot more powerful than they were at the beginning, and maybe more so than the the, uh, people who wrote the Constitution originally intended
10: and the last time we actually had a declaration of war was when?
6: Uh it was 1942, uh, when there was a declaration of war by Congress against a couple of countries in Central Europe, not long after Pearl Harbor. And ever since then, as David knows, uh, there has never been a declaration of war, although there have been one or two wars since then, I think. Right. And so,
1: Michael, I know that this is the sort of question that you as a historian get a lot. Uh, How do you sort of keep track of things that are moving so fast in the present and apply what you know as a historian to try and make sense of it in real time? Or or do you just sort of throw up your hands and say, I'm going to need a little bit of time to digest it? It's
6: a really good question. You know, sometimes you can see things that are happening in real time and they would remind me or remind one of the other great historians, and, or I should say one of the great historians in David's book, like David McCullough or Ron Chernow or John Beecham or Norris Curtis Goodwin or Taylor Branch or Robert Caro or others. And we've all talked about this, and sometimes we we'll watch, for instance, President Trump or President Obama do something that reminds us of something in history, but that, there's a difference between that and being able to in real time say, this is the way that President Trump will be seen in history. This is the way that President Obama will be seen in history. I believe that it takes about 40 years or more to begin to get a fix on a president uh, in history because of two things. One is it usually takes that long to begin to get access to the kind of sources that show us what the president was like behind the scenes, memcons, emails perhaps, you know other documents, but more important than that, I think it takes at least 40 years to get the kind of hindsight that allows us to see what about a president was important in the, in the light of history later on, and what turned out to have been maybe an obsessive concern of people of his generation, but turned out later on not to be so important. So that's the difference between yeah. looking at a president so, in Michael. history versus looking at him in real time.
10: As a presidential historian, I would uh, you would say the greatest American president was who?
6: Uh, I would say probably a tie between
10: Abraham Lincoln
6: and George Washington. Uh, they had different tasks at different times. I think it's hard to compare.
10: Yes, I would say Abraham Lincoln is the person who held the country together. And I'm not sure anybody else at that time would have worked so hard to keep the country together. It'd been easier to just say to the South, Goodbye. Um, and I think Washington will be second because he created the presidency, essentially, and much of the, many of the things he did, we still live with. So I'd say right. beyond those two, uh, you can debate many different people, FDR, TR. But I think those two are in a league by themselves.
1: And that's David Rubenstein, my very special co-host for one of the days this week on our daily radio show. Check that out. Every day from 2 to 5 p.m. Wall Street time, he was able to catch up with me with Michael Beschloss, noted author and historian about David's book and also the presidential history that we all are so obsessed with. So Taylor, it's a very fashion-forward pursuit section in this week's magazine. I feel like I learned quite a bit reading this section.
2: Well, you did, and we're gonna get to all of the style tips that you need, but first, Jason, I need to become a fast-track billionaire because Ralph and Russo need to start dressing me. James Gaddy, of course, is our deputy editor of Pursuits, and really sort of overseeing this entire fashion-forward issue, as Jason mentioned, Walk us through the cover story, who is this duo, what are they like, who are they dressing?
7: Yeah, this story has two really interesting components to it. On the one hand, you've got Ralph and Russo. They're, uh, well, started out boyfriend and girlfriend, now fiance, fiance duo. Uh, started uh, just 10 years ago and very, very quickly have risen to the tippy, tippy top of the fashion world. They, uh, they are one of the first, I guess, British brands in about 100 years to become part of this uh, French regulatory body that determines what is haute couture, which is things that are made to measure, very, very, uh, I mean, you think about the Chanels of the world, you think of the Valentinos of the world. Uh, They were started in the 60s, some of them in the early 1900s. They've really gotten on a market on this, uh, or a a bead on this market, excuse me, uh, in just 10 years. Uh, She's from Australia. They're both from Australia. Uh, They operate out of London. They have a lot of wealthy Gulf uh, clientele, Uh, Saudi uh, royal family, even the British royal family. If you remember Meghan Markle's dress that she wore for the engagement photos with uh, Prince Harry. Got a lot of controversy because it was sheer. Uh, They did that. She ended up going with Givenchy for the actual wedding, but for the engagement photos, uh, it it really raised the profile of this brand. Uh, Since then, they've been. uh, They did Priyanka Chopra for her wedding, and uh, they they've really. uh, I guess if you're thinking about it in terms of like prices, probably the cheapest thing that you can get is about two thousand dollars, up to about fourteen thousand dollars. If you get something actually made in their atelier could be over
1: $100,000. And Jim, that high-touch element seems to be one of the really important uh, things here. They're sort of spending money to, to make money. Help us understand the business model.
7: Yeah, you know, if, uh, if you remember that Dolly Parton quote, uh, I spent a lot of money to look this cheap. Well, yeah. <laughs> it also costs a lot of money to look that expensive. Uh, they have been expanding their line. They've been doing uh, bags. They've been doing uh, purses. And uh, they've been uh, expanding out opening shops in uh, Monaco, uh, in Doha. And uh, you know this kind of material that they're using, it's very top of the line. And uh, so they have been actually running at a loss for the last couple of years. You'd think with all these wealthy clientele they and all these customers. I mean, they have customers in 58 different countries. But it is very expensive to run that business. It's, very, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting window into how a uh, brand like this actually makes money. And over the summer, they got uh, an investment from uh, Lars Windhorst, who you might remember uh, over the summer was involved with the H2O asset management uh, company. The, 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 the fund that backs him had over 8 billion euros in redemptions because he has such a checkered past. Uh, for a brand like Ralph and Russo, for him to come in and do this sort of investment for them. is a really interesting idea in terms of who you can turn to for money in this market.
2: Well, so interesting, and also not only who you can turn to, but sort of like you were mentioning in terms of their expansion plans, two out of the six locations are in the Gulf, which Uh is very interesting. One of which you mentioned was in Dubai. What sort of the clientele are they targeting there? You'd mentioned Meghan Markle. Who else can we expect on the map in their expansion plans?
7: Uh, well, it's really just, uh, well, they they say uh, New York. They're coming to New York. It's in their immediate plans. And, and uh, I'm assuming that's what this investment is really for. Uh, and because, I mean, that's really, they're looking for an American market that is going to, the, that American billionaire market, perhaps. Uh, but you know, they're really, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, she describes it almost like a fairy tale. Uh, and that's kind of what you're thinking about when you're in terms of princes. Princesses and uh, the, the Saudi royal family talking about uh, the London royal family uh, you know the um, Princess Beatrice whenever she was uh, uh, got married her uh, her um, maid of honor more uh, uh, a rough and roots of things so I think that's probably where we're going to keep seeing it
1: So, Jim, elsewhere in this section, you have a pair of profiles, one of a man, a very prominent designer, and one of a new brand. Let's start with the man, Virgil Abloh. He has taken literally the world by storm.
7: Yeah, you know, one of the things that really intrigued us about uh, Virgil for this issue in particular is the rising influence of streetwear, uh, the prices that are associated with it. I mean, some of his uh, sneakers are going on the resale market for over five thousand dollars. And you know, Virgil Abloh, he's currently the head of menswear at Louis Vuitton. Uh, he's been there for a year, but he really got his start uh, running a brand called Off-White. And what he did was really just collaborate with everybody under the sun. I mean, you think you name a brand, if it's uh, a Jimmy Choo, to a Levi's, to a Champion, to uh, Braun shaving, uh, Byredo, uh fragrances. He's mostly known for uh, his collaborations with Nike. Uh, he's uh, sort of the guy who does quotes. He puts air on things. Uh, he did a collaboration for uh, Serena Williams uh, last year for the US Open. Then he put Serena, in quotes, on her sneakers. Uh, it's, very stuff that, it's just stuff that's very of the moment. Um, he has an exhibition this summer in Chicago and basically just turned Chicago into this hub of, of fashion energy uh and so we kind of went through and looked at all the collaborations that he's done just in this last sort of six seven months uh i don't know how he does it don't ask me <laughs> well when you talk about
2: streetwear and sort of the times that we're in and this feels like a relatively new phenomenon as we sort of look back at fashion and the rise of the streetwear a lot of it has to do with sneakers like mm-hmm. you mentioned uh give us some of the hot sneakers and the prices what are we talking about
7: uh, well, you've got uh, his uh, his most famous collaboration is with Nike. It's called the Ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was back in 2017, and he basically took ten of Nike's most popular shoes ever and then redesigned them. He put like the Nike swoosh in the back, or you know, put some like funny words on it. And uh, he uh, those. I mean, again, it, they will sell for over two, three, four thousand dollars. I mean, they're they're completely sold out uh if you want to do something a little more on you know a little bit lower price point he is doing a collaboration with ikea this fall he's doing uh, a set of rugs that are green that they say wet grass it's a very funny um they're not quite as expensive as sneakers but they will sell out probably in about 10 seconds <laughs>
1: so jim talk to me about this new brand called noah i am fortunate enough to have a couple fashion forward teenagers living in my house who keep me honest about this this is a brand that was born of arguably one of the iconic figures in this whole new scene which is supreme a guy who was the design director there he has started noah what's noah all about
7: well, yeah, you, as you mentioned, uh, you know, 10 years at Supreme, really taking it to the top of the streetwear world, even, I mean, fashion world, uh, bar none. Uh, but he always kind of harbored this idea to do his own brand. Uh, he grew up in East Islip on Long Island. Uh, he grew up surfing. He grew up sailing. And he's a big uh, advocate of conservation. Uh, environmental concerns uh, are his big thing. But he's also kind of uh, you know, an old punk rock you know, skater guy. And so he's taking these uh, kind of classics of American fashion polos, you know, rugby shirts, hoodies, button-down shirts, and putting like environmental messages on them, like save the whales, but with really graphic depictions of you know how terrible uh, the situation is. Uh, he's uh, he references a lot of music. Um, but it, it's stuff that looks almost like it could be rescued from your grandfather's closet. There's a lot of corduroy, a lot of plaids, some paisleys. It's, uh, it's very interesting, but it's all very uh, conscientiously made. It's uh, in very limited runs. Everything sells out. And, uh, but, and then it's got this kind of like subversive edge to it that is, uh, you know, as he says, you know, the people who grew up on hip hop and new wave music in the 80s didn't automatically turn into dorks whenever they started having children of their own.
2: (laughs) Well, another thing that I really liked is in the story, you talk about how he's doing what other brands are maybe scared to do, sort of breaking down the cost and really Mm. explicitly saying what everything costs. He has a blog post and sort of coming out on Instagram as well with a uh, how much does this cost sort of series, breaking it down. Why that approach?
7: Yeah, it's something that they are calling radical transparency and uh, it's everlane uh, the startup does something kind of similar to this but uh, what they have done is really push the boundaries and it's really connecting with the younger audience uh, you know gen z millennial consumers uh, are very interested in sustainability and uh, where their things come from and uh, he has just push that as much as possible to say, even as much as like, this is exactly how much money, this is our margins that we are going to make on this, because these are our salaries, this is what we use to pay for our help, our rent, um, and then here is what, you know, tariff. Would, would cost uh, as part of that price.
1: And that's our buddy Jim Gaddy, deputy editor of the Pursuit section.
2: And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Taylor Riggs, in for Carol Masser.
1: And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week radio, live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
2: Can't catch the show live? Get the daily podcast for the ride home, wherever you download podcasts.
1: And you can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now.
2: This this is Bloomberg.